Hmm. There's no one like Jesus, is there? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. I'm in Mark. No wonder I look funny. Let me ask you this morning, when you go to a place of business, do you appreciate it when the person is an expert at their job? Yeah, yeah so do I. I think about hardware stores, but I won't go there. <clears throat> the butcher who's cutting your meat, the person who's cutting your hair, or the, the person who's fixing your car, Right? Definitely the person who's doing your taxes or the doctor evaluating your health, right? You want them to uh, to be an expert at their job. <clears throat> it made me think, you know, should a Christian be a, an expert at something? You know, there are things that a Christian can do that no one else can do. There are things that a Christian knows that others don't know, right? And it makes me think about being an expert about those things. So this morning we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4, make sure I'm on the right page here, and verse 12, we'll read through 17, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Zebulun and Naphtali were in an area in Israel that became known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. These were areas that were often uh, pathways of invasion by numerous other countries. They were close to that, to that edge, so to speak. And in, so they were often invaded. And the influence was so per- pervasive in those two tribes that you could detect that people were from Galilee by the way they talked. In fact, if you remember when uh, Peter went to try to find out what was going on with Jesus, he got challenged by the servant girl who recognized him. You're from Galilee. How does she know that? From the way he talked. See, the, the people from Galilee, their, their language is a little rougher, you know, than uh, the rest of Israel. So this was an effect by their location. And Matthew describes them as people who were sitting in darkness, And doesn't that strike you as being kind of strange, sitting in darkness? It's not normal to sit in darkness. Sleep in darkness, yes. But if we're sitting, we usually want the light on. Wouldn't you agree? Now, if we had been there at the time, the sun would have been shining just like any other day. So why does he describe them as being in darkness? Well, we have to conclude that the darkness is is an expression of speech, isn't it? 
and not literal darkness. Not like it was in Moscow in December. In December in Moscow, they had six minutes of sunshine, and not all at once. <laughs> but they usually have a little more than that. They usually have about 18 hours. <laughs> but in, Mos- in Moscow, they're not just sitting around either, and neither were they in Galilee. <clears throat> so what does it mean they were sitting in darkness? If I'm in the dark about something, it means I don't know something, right? Or I, I'm not aware of something. And logic and common sense would dictate, well, if, if you don't know something or you're having trouble with that, get some light, figure it out. But that's not what these people were doing. If we look at the word sitting by definition in the original language, we, we find this. Sitting means to sit down figuratively, to remain, to reside, to dwell. They were sitting in this condition with a contented posture. They meant to stay there. It didn't bother them that they were sitting in darkness. It was characteristic or habitual of them to sit in the darkness. They sat in the darkness as if it was the most normal thing to do, as if the light was on. But that's not all. Where were they sitting? It says they were sitting in the land in the shadow of death. That doesn't sound good, does it? And we'll see later there's a direct connection between their idea, their habit of sitting and the place they were sitting. But the question we want to ask is, what were they in the dark about? And why were they content with being in the dark? What happened to them gives us a clue in verse 16. It says, the people saw a great light. And those who were, who were sitting, upon them a light dawned. Jesus came to their region. He was the light. He said he was the light of the world. What does that mean? Well, as we know, the world is in darkness. It's separated from God. We don't know God, and so we're in darkness. This is the darkness it's talking about. So these people were separated from God, but the problem is they were okay with that. In fact, they were quite content with it. They simply did not care. That's pretty dark darkness, don't you think? Can I say that? Well, how bad is it to be in that kind of darkness? Well, it's bad enough to end up in the blackness of darkness. When a person, when a person is in darkness and they get light from God about how to get out of that darkness and they refuse to do it, God seals their choice. You want to remain in darkness? Then you will for eternity. It's your choice. <clears throat> Doesn't get any worse than that. So the problem with this darkness is its severity. Can we measure this darkness? Well, one way to look at this is to see all the ways that man has tried to go around the light of God by setting up all these religions to make him think he's okay with God. We could go through the list and we could see the extent to which man has been religious or spiritual. But there's another way to tell how bad the darkness is. And it's kind of unusual, but it's, it's, if we measure how much light is rejected, 
we could see how bad this darkness is. Just walk with me through this. If I ask you which hand the marble is in, it's clear, isn't it? I'm giving you light. I'm giving you a big hint. What if the person picks this hand? They're rejecting the light, aren't they? So if you reject the light, that's on you. So if a measure of darkness is to evaluate how much light is being rejected, let's turn off the light. And see the magnitude of the problem. I read in a, in a blog uh, a few months ago, I think it was, this guy was writing. He says, we need to get rid of all things Christian in the world. All right, let's do that. Let's see what it's like. What if Jesus had never come? What would the world be like? This thought occurred to me, and I, I was overwhelmed by it at first, but... Uh, I've got something here to share with you. Don't worry. (laughs) Totally removed from the world any Christian influence whatsoever. And that means all the Christian cults as well. Okay? Turn back the clock 2,500 years or so and let the clock begin to progress forward. All right? There's no nativity. Jesus did not come. There is no Christmas. There will be no Easter. There is no Jesus, so there's no church. The world did not hear about the apostles because there wasn't any. There was no gospel to preach. No churches were built. All the incredible cathedrals, paintings, and statues in Europe do not exist. No hymns were ever written. The Bible, which has been the most popular book of all time and translated into more languages, now doesn't exist, never was written. The transforming power of the gospel never came, and people's lives and eternal destinies were never changed. And all those people Jesus healed, like the woman we heard about this morning, weren't healed. The people he resurrected stayed dead. There are no reason for the pilgrims to come to this country because there's no religious persecution to cause them to go. This continent became just like any other continent, conquered by whoever had the power to do it. There are no men of great integrity and moral fortitude to write the Constitution. The USA would simply not exist as we know it. The world would be run by men according to however they wanted to like it was in the days of Noah when it said everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Only the strongest would survive, just like evolution says. False religions would abound as man searched for some meaning in life and the trouble he faces. Egypt, Rome, and Greece are all gone now, and it's clear to see that their gods were false now, isn't it? Imagine all those people and the power and the intelligence they had. They had invented all those gods. For nothing. But if there's no Christianity, those civilizations might go, but more will just pop up and they'll do just the same thing, invent more gods. When I think about this subject, it reminds me of one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life, with Jimmy Stewart. 
who plays a guy named George Bailey, right? A man who really, really made a positive difference in his, in his town, but became discouraged and, de- and depressed and, and, and wanted to die, but was shown what his town would look like if he had not been born. And of course, the town, when you went there, evil basically ran, ran unrestrained and people lived in darkness and bondage. And that's what the world would be like today without God's intervention. Imagine what it would be like if Jesus had not come. But he did. And it's made a huge difference. But you can see by going through and looking at what the world would be like without him, how much light we've really been given. So I've done a broad brushstroke over the subject, but you see that God has shown and continues to show tremendous light in this world. So why are the churches not overflowing every Sunday? Because the darkness is that bad. People don't really want to know God. They want to be religious. They want to do things on their own terms, but they don't want to do things the way God wants them to do it, right? Some of the verses that best describe that are in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That might violate a few of the beliefs of some of the religions we know, huh? Some might strongly disagree and say, well, look at all the religions we have. Surely people want to know God. But remember Dean's message a couple of weeks ago. People want to come to him on their own terms. Part of it, part of the, of this is that they have decided, they've decided what God is like. And they've pretty much made him like what they want him to be so they can do what they want to do. A God of their own imaginations. I mean, that's exactly what the Greeks, the Romans, and the Egyptians did. You might say they're more religious than anybody because of all the gods they had and how devoted they were to them. But study their gods. What are their gods like? Have you ever noticed that? Their gods behave like people. Jealous, angry, vengeful. It's darkness. The people are in darkness. Being religious really doesn't account for anything. A religious person is concerned mostly with what people think of them, not what God thinks of them. So as we look at this situation, the light is on, but the people need help, don't they? Didn't you? A person who's been in darkness and suddenly is encountering light, it's like, you know, they squint their eyes because it hurts. It's uncomfortable. If this is true, then, when we talk to other people about Jesus, we need to seriously consider that's the condition that they're really in. If we don't take that into consideration, we're not going to be very effective. Now, I know God can make anything happen, and he usually helps us out where we, we fail, but I'm talking about being faithful to the, to the gospel and really trying to help people come to know God, being effective. So many times what I have done and what I notice other people do is we tend to rush 
to the good news. We tend to rush and tell people about Jesus, that he died for them. We quote 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Is it true? Sure it is. How does that come across to a person who's in darkness, though? I would remind you that Jesus is the most famous person in all of history, so they've heard of him, and they've heard he's died for sins, But do they really know what that means? Do they know what sin is? You might as well ask them, have you been washed in the blood? They're not going to be able to deal with that very well either, are they? They need to be washed in the blood, but they really don't have a clue, do they? We say people to people, you know, Jesus died for sins. You need to be saved. You need to pray this prayer. We don't often hear what the good doctor said this morning, a woman at the Billy Graham uh, crusade who suddenly, the light comes on for her, wow, now I understand the blood, now I understand what Jesus did. That's what you want to hear. But by telling them that up front, they're not going to get it. Why? 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 is a summary of the gospel. It's not very effective all by itself. There's some work that's got to be done before you get there. Some people say, well, no, you just just need to give them the gospel. Okay. Well, if that's true, then what about New Tribes Missions? This is an organization, a Christian organization. Their sole objective is to go and reach unreached peoples, go into the middle of the jungles of Papua New Guinea for people who've never even heard of a Bible, and so we're just going to give them the gospel? Is that really going to help? If I tell you how aerodynamics works, should I expect you to be able to fly a plane? Can you show me in Scripture where we're just supposed to give the gospel? The Bible says, go therefore... In in Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. That doesn't sound like just giving somebody some information, does it? The Apostle Paul used to go from town to town. He'd go in the synagogue first, and then he would go outside the synagogue to talk to the Gentiles. And what did he do? He reasoned with them. Because people are in darkness. They need help to be able to see. That light is really bright. So let's us, let us consider the serious condition of the darkness, okay, where people are really at, that we might be able to really help them. Because we need to take them from where they're at to where they need to go. We can't just have a canned gospel presentation like the cults do and just spill it out on everybody and hope to be effective, When we're in darkness, we're spiritually dead. Like it says in Ephesians, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Do you remember that? I do. I sinned continuously. I was once dead to God. Consider what it's like to be dead by thinking about a dead person. If we had a coffin up here with a dead body lying in it, 
how are we going to get through to that person? Offer it all the things it used to love to do and see if it responds. Ransack the libraries and the computer databases of the world and you won't find any clue on how to make that body alive again. Google has no clue. That's what it's like to be in the darkness. We really don't know. We really don't understand. We are aware of some facts, but we don't understand. I remember that. You do too. You were familiar with spiritual things, but you didn't know God. Or you thought you knew God until somebody challenged you to prove it, and you couldn't. So what happens to a person like that? How does things, how do things change for a person who's in darkness? How do they be able to come to see the light? Let's think this through. If a person's in darkness, their only hope is what? To be born again. They need to be made alive, right? Right? Being born again is nothing short of a miracle. Why? That's something God does, right? So you know God's going to play heavily in this, isn't he? So how does it happen? In John 1.12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Those who choose to receive, which is synonymous with believe, what does God do? He raises them from the dead, doesn't he? Okay. Got it. That's God's part. God's going to have to do that. Okay, working backwards, then, how do we get a person to the point where they want to receive Christ? Sinners don't naturally want to do that, okay? They don't naturally want to be saints, not biblically. Think about it. What would cause a hardened criminal to take an interest in God. John Newton was mentioned this morning. I actually have his name down here. He wrote Amazing Grace. Now, John Newton was a hellraiser. He was a blasphemer. He was known for trying to lead people away from God. And he, he got saved, became a preacher, and wrote a hymn that even unbelievers know today. What happened? How did John go from where he was to being a servant of God and loving God? What caused this man to be drawn to God? Last night we had uh, pork chops for dinner, and my wife got a really good deal on them, 99 cents a pound. Is that a good deal or what? (laughs) That's like almost unheard of. I don't know how she... Well, she prays about her shopping, so that's probably what has something to do with it. But she was noting that, you know, they do that on purpose. Lucky's cut the price down that on just this one thing because it gets you in the door, doesn't it? You're drawn in. And while you're there, you know, it's pretty convenient to get the rest of the stuff you need, which is not marked down, right? Okay. So... They, they draw people in by prices. How does a person get drawn to God? John 6.44, it tells us very clearly. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Hey, God's involved again, isn't he? And he has all the answers. 
So we could spend, we could talk for hours on all the ways that God has done this. But basically, God works in your life and mine, engineering the circumstances, situations, and the people in your life to cause you to come to a point where you realize, you know what? I think I need God. A lot of people think, I was seeking God. You think you were seeking God, so did I, but we weren't. (laughs) God was seeking us, and he caused us to seek him. He was there first. And if you've thought about it, that's actually a pretty big job, to cause people to come to you. Why is it a big job? Well, in 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And John 3.16 says, Who does he love? The whole world. God's pretty busy, right? He wants everybody to save. He's working in everybody's life because he's not willing that any should perish. And he's drawing all people to himself. Does that mean they come? Sadly not. Jesus even said that. Broad is the road to destruction. That's what most people choose. Narrow is the road to life and fewer are those who choose it. Well, I'm glad that part is God's job because I can't do that. So now we have a person who's been drawn to God. He senses a need, but he's still in the dark, right? He doesn't know God yet. He just realizes that God's important somehow. So what does he need to know? Well, what separates man from God? Sin. He needs to know what sin is. Now, how is that going to happen? Well, it just so happens, Jesus speaking in, in John 16, verse 8, he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he says, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Convict means to convince. The Holy Spirit convinces people of their dangerous condition. And when the Spirit convinces a person they have been in rebellion against God, and that none of the good they thought they were doing, they thought they had done, is any good at all, well, then what? He convinces them of judgment as well, doesn't he? You can't have done all this sin and think you're going to get away with it, right? He convinces them of judgment. They're actually going to be punished. So if we go back to our hardened criminal like John Newton, what if our hardened criminal agrees, you know what? You're right, God. I agree. I am a sinner. And it's pretty clear to me when I look at all the things that I've done. But agreeing with God means punishment, doesn't it? You can see why people try to avoid this. It's not a pleasant subject. Christians don't really like to talk about it either. And sometimes they fail to talk about it. But if a person doesn't realize this, then what are they going to get saved from? If you're talking to somebody about the Lord and you're discussing sin with them, you're talking about the bad news. That's the bad news part of the gospel presentation, and there's the good news to come. Before you give them the good news, you need to check and make sure that they're really ready for it. 
You hear somebody say, yeah, I'm a sinner. Ask them this question. Okay, you're right. You are a sinner. God says so. Do you think it's right for him to send you to hell for your sins? And that is a question that a lot of people will really struggle with. A lot of people will say no. At which case, you can give them the good news, but they've already stopped the program, haven't they? They don't see their need. But if you have somebody who does, you know, I've angered a loving and holy God, I broke his laws, and I must be punished, and I don't see any way out. I can't do any good to fix the situation, and I don't want to go to hell. But I see it's right. That's what you want. That's where you want a person to come to. You want them to see that. Yeah, and at this point, you may have a person in tears. Oh, actually, I've been in tears myself with them. Because you've just brought them to the worst possible situation in their life they could possibly be in, didn't you? Because that's where they really are. And they need to know it. Their eyes are opening. And they can see more now. And it's only when a person comes to this point that the cross makes any sense at all. We often tell people, well, you can't be saved by your good works. <clears throat> if we share the gospel correctly with people, we don't even have to say that. When a person realizes that they're a sinner and, they're, and they deserve punishment and they agree with God, it's clear without explanation that rituals, prayer, giving money, going to church, giving donations, Bible readings, not going to help. Because only punishment can deal with sin, Right? The principle of substitution now will begin to make sense to them. And this is exactly where you want to get. If you go too fast with this, it doesn't make sense to them. But a person who really realizes, like our hardened criminal here, like John Newton did, when he recognizes, I'm a hell-bound sinner, and rightly so, you ask them, what if God could find someone to suffer the punishment for you? There are different degrees of understanding at this point, but you might get this question. Well, who would do that for me? I wouldn't do that for anybody. Who would suffer my... Do you realize what you're saying? You're literally saying that somebody's going to go to hell for me? That's just not possible. You could ask them then, if a person did do that for you, what could you say about how much they care about you? And it could happen either way. You could get a long pause at this point because they're thinking, oh my gosh, somebody might do this for me? Somebody would love me that much? And you tell them there is such a person. His name is Jesus. And he loves you. And he died for your sins. And now those words mean something to them, don't they? It makes all the sense in the world to them. You know, Their eyes get really wide now. 
And isn't that symbolic of what's happening to them in the darkness? Huh? The light's really coming on for them, isn't it? They finally see who he is and what it is he's done. For others, you won't have to work so hard to get them to that point when you ask them, what if somebody were willing to suffer for your sins for you? And it's just like, bow, Jesus. Like the, the gal at the Billy Graham concert. Now I understand. They put it all together because it makes sense to them. God draws, God convinces, and then God gives them life. Now, I'm painting only a couple of very narrow stories here. Salvation happens in a lot of different ways and people go through a lot of struggles because people getting saved is just is not like changing the oil on your car. There is a struggle going on here because people are in darkness and they don't want the light. And there are a lot of things that can happen to keep them... You know, every time I, I, I get into a good conversation with somebody and I'm thinking, okay, the next day I'm going to be able to talk to them again, you know, something happens and they're not there. That's spiritual oppression. The demons are not happy. They do not want to see a person get saved. So, I'm painting a narrow picture here, but I want, I'm walking through this for you on purpose. At this point, you might say to me, now, wait a minute, John, we're witnesses. Where's our part in this? Well, I left it out on purpose. I wanted to make clear God's part in all of that. And now I'll make clear what our part is in it as well. Okay, so when God draws a person to himself, he works circumstances in their life to get them to, to see their need for him. Okay? It should be clear. One of the ways he uses does this is by using our lives. Right? If we live for God then our lives should be different than the rest of the world, shouldn't it? When a person is hurting, seeking for help, they can look at us and wonder, now, what do they have that I don't have? Because they have the same trouble as me, but they're not, they're not acting like I am. They have peace. They have joy somehow. What do they know that I don't know, right? Can you see now that everything we say and do becomes really important? How we live becomes really important. That's why you've heard it the last two Sundays from this pulpit. We've been challenged to live for God and be devoted to Him because it's critical for them. And if you remember, you were there once too. Somebody was devoted to the Lord and made sure you heard the gospel as well, right? <clears throat> All right. So that's when God draws a person. Now, when the Holy Spirit is convincing people of sin, righteousness, and judgment, what's our part in that? Well, if, if, a, if a person is going to learn about these things, he needs to know what the Bible says and who's going to tell him. It's going to be us, isn't it? We're the ones who know. So knowing your Bible is going to be really important, isn't it? And we tend to have a lot of go-to verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, Romans 3.23 and 6.23, if, uh, Revelation 3.20 and John 3.16. I'm going to tell you, that's probably just a good skeleton or partial, partial pack of verses that you really need to help somebody understand that they need God. We need to know more of, of the Bible, verses that will be effective in helping them. 
Before the gospel makes sense to them, we have to show them why they need it. And just telling them, you know, good works won't work doesn't help. God called us to work alongside him in the salvation of souls. He's an expert at what he does, isn't he? We should be too. Now, God doesn't expect me to be like that overnight. I've been working on it for years. I've made all the cardinal mistakes in evangelism. But I, but I want so much to really help people that I've tried to learn more about, well, what can I do to be more effective? So this is a large subject, and I could probably talk for hours, but I won't because I'll get in trouble with Adel. I want to close with a very important area of witness, and that would be to, to children, children in a Christian home. Um, I'm not aware of the full scope of how the gospel is doing in, in our church, but I know what common, has commonly happened in the church in America. Many times, pa- Christian parents feel, feel especially uh, moved to get their kids saved. They impress on, upon them about being good, going to church, knowing their Bible, and they press them to make professions before the Holy Spirit has done his work. And so you can see kids make profession after profession after profession. What's really common is to meet some of these kids later on in life, and they're saved, they're going to church, but you, you know how we like to ask people, how did you get saved? We like to hear how the Lord works in people's lives, right? They say, well, I got saved when I was uh, a little boy or a little girl, but when I got a little older, uh, I strayed from the Lord, and then I got serious about God. What do you think happened there? We forget that children are also in darkness. Young kids oftentimes are going to do what you say simply because you say to do it. They're going to do what you say because they believe what you say. That doesn't mean they understand what you say, but they're going to believe what you say. And if you've been a parent for any length of time, you know kids are going to say what you want them to hear. They know what you want to hear. And if you have a class full of kids or a room full of adults and you ask who wants to get saved, some people are going to do it just out of peer pressure. So I I think you can see that people are well-meaning a lot of times, parents, Sunday school teachers, et cetera, et cetera. But we need to be careful about how we do this because we can get people to easily confess to being a Christian when they really don't understand. Don't get me wrong. Kids can get saved. It does happen. It's not real common, but it does happen. Parents, don't be panicky about your kids getting saved. God wants to save them more than you do. Okay? But you can't do it without him, and you can't run ahead of him. Okay? They're in darkness like anybody else. All right? Thankfully, I've also seen that many of these kids, they they do end up going through a crisis of faith, and they do end up getting saved. So what we want to do is uh, close this up because I'm out of time. Um, I just want to cover one verse, John 1.12, to make clear what the verse really says so that we understand how this works. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, meaning born again, not of blood, No one's born a Christian. 
There are people who say, I've always been a Christian. You were born a Christian. Nor the will of the flesh. A person is unable to make himself born again. Nor of the will of man. No other person can make somebody born again. Try to get somebody to pray numerous times, but you're not going to make them be born again unless God's part of it and it's going to happen. So nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, people born again through God. And I think we understand our part in this. And so if we think about the application of this, first of all, thank God for opening my eyes. And you can too, that we're no longer in darkness. Isn't it an incredible thing to say? See, sometimes I sit in the breaking of bread in the morning and realize most of the people outside this building have no clue. And I'm so grateful to be here and serve the Lord and praise him. Secondly, if the conditions of darkness are really true, God plays a big part in it. Hence, prayer is critical, isn't it? Right? And if people are in darkness and I'm working along with God to help people be saved, I need to pray too for me. Lord, I need to be more like you so you can use them to draw me. I need to do things the way you do so I can help them. Right? Study what how Jesus dealt with people who came to him who said they wanted to be saved. Don't you, don't you let people come to What do I have to do to be saved? Isn't that what the rich young ruler did? What did Jesus do? He didn't ask him to pray a prayer. He challenged him with the law. Look at the woman at the well. How did he deal with her? So I'm going to end now. But if we're interested in effectiveness in evangelism, we should look at what Jesus did and also look at Galatians 3.24, what Paul says. It's very helpful. This is something I've been working on for the last five or six years. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law is a tutor. What's a tutor? A teacher, right? Personal teacher. A private teacher to help us to come to Christ. We cannot tell them their works are no good. We have to show them why. The law makes it perfectly clear. So let's think about it. Let's study it. Let's, let's ask the Lord to use us, to give us opportunities. And let's be prepared because everything's at stake. Lord, we thank you this morning for the gospel that made a change in our lives for all time and eternity. And now, like you, we want to see others saved as well, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to be effective, Lord, for the lost souls that are still out there. We thank you that you're not willing that any should perish, and we don't want them to either. So we just commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.